things sprinkled around that. But Friday night, this room will be set up for prayer for the nations. It's kind of a come and go event. You can spend as much time praying or as little as you need. Um, and, and there'll be booths set up around the room with different requests for different parts of the nations. Um, Saturday night, this room is transformed into an international bazaar slash auction house. Bring your checkbook. All the money goes to pay the salaries of our missionaries or special projects that will be highlighted. It is one of the most fun, charitable gifts you'll ever give. So come, we'll have art from some of our own artists that are auctioned off and a number of other resources like that. So that's Saturday night. And then Sunday morning, Rob Connolly, one of our church planners from Martinsville, Virginia, will be uh, teaching us from the scriptures. And so that, that should be an out, outstanding time as well. So you have some information in your hand. Uh, also in the lobby, you can buy a North Wake calendar that has every month some of our far-flung families to pray for. And it has the key events in the life of our church as well. They're like 10 bucks, and they're out there. The Burks are on here somewhere. Everybody's on here. So pray, pray, pray. Pick up a calendar on your way out in the lobby. They'll be available next week as well. So that's intermissions. Um, Daniel mentioned today is the first Sunday in Lent. It's 40 days of getting ready for Easter. It is a season of uh, introspection, reflection, and repentance. So it's a chance to examine ourselves and ready ourselves for the celebration that is the grace and mercy of Christ that comes to us on Easter Sunday. There are Lenten resources available for you and your family on our leader blog, on our website. There are devotionals for you and devotionals for your children uh, that you can do together as a family. And just go to the website, you'll, you'll find them there. And uh, as part of Lent, we're starting a new series. We'll drop out of Joshua. And from now until Easter, next week is an exception because it's intermissions. But the rest of the Sundays between now and Easter, we'll be focusing on a new series um, that's called The Seven Last Words of Jesus. Those are the seven sayings that Jesus spoke while he was on the cross. And so that will be the centerpiece of our teaching. Um, we have rearranged the room uh, to make the cross central, to make the Lord's table central, and we'll be celebrating the table, again, with the exception of next Sunday, each Sunday in Lent. So I hope those will be helpful things for you. But we will be focusing on the seven last words of Jesus. We'll look at the first two of those words, the sayings from the cross. Today it's called the word of forgiveness and the word of salvation. And those are found in Luke chapter 23. You can open up there in your Bibles. And I'll pray for us as you find your way there. Okay, bow with me, please. <clears throat> Father, come now and show us Show us in irrefutable, irresistible ways how wide and how high and how long and how deep is your love for us, even for us. So lift up your son. Let us hear his good words for us by your spirit. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Shea Serrano is an author. He tells a story when he had taken an exit ramp near his home, his car sputtered and died, couldn't restart the car, so he calls a tow truck, gets the car back to the house, opens the hood, checks some wires and stuff. He's not very good with cars. He gives up and calls his dad. 
His dad lives 215 miles away and drives a bus for a living. And so he tells his son, I'll be there tomorrow. And so after a 10-hour day, he makes a three or four-plus hour drive, 215 miles, and he shows up at Shay's house. Shay's father arrived on his doorstep three hours after he had turned in his bus at the depot. He said hello, hugged his son, walked back out into the driveway to have a look under the hood. It took about 15 seconds. His father emerged from under the hood, looked at his son, returned his wrench to his toolbox, walked past Shay to his own vehicle. What's wrong, Dad? Did you not bring the right tools? Shay asked. He says, we're done. His dad replied, well, what's wrong with it? It's out of gas, son. <laughs> this, this is the amazing part, though. Uh, Shay's dad ate with his son and headed home. Another 215 miles, 430 miles round trip after 10 hours of driving a bus that day. Serrano says his father didn't harass him or berate him that evening over dinner. He didn't even bring it up at all. As a matter of fact, nine years later, his father had still never mentioned the embarrassing incident again. You know, forgiveness is an awesome thing, isn't it? And when you see it, it kind of makes you step back and say, really, never? He, he never brought it up, ever? For nine years, he never brought it up? Um, and the awesomeness quotient with respect to forgiveness is related to what is being forgiven, right? So it's, it's one thing to forgive somebody who cuts you off in traffic. It's another thing to forgive somebody who breaks into your home and does harm to your family. Um, and so that's really the question that we want to think about today um, with respect to these words that Jesus is about to speak from the cross. What exact, who exactly, first, who exactly is being forgiven and for what? Who exactly is being forgiven in our story and for what? And so Luke 23, our setting today, and really the setting for each of the passages that we'll look, out through, look at throughout this series, um, is what we call Good Friday. It's the day that Jesus was nailed to the cross. He speaks these seven sayings from the cross and today we find ours in Luke 23, starting in verse 32. We read, Two others who were criminals were led away to put, death, to, to put to death to him, to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. This is the first word, the first saying from the cross, and it's called the word of forgiveness. And this again is a good spot to remind ourselves of the question, exactly who is being forgiven here and for what? So let's take the first part. Who is being forgiven when Jesus prays, Father, forgive them? Who is the them? 
That's the beneficiary of Jesus' prayer. And to answer this, it really is critical to remind ourselves of where Jesus is when he prays this. He is on the cross, that great, horrible Roman instrument of torture and death. And he is forgiving the very people who put him there. We can't lose sight of that. That means, at least in part, that he's forgiving the soldiers, the ones who physically stretched out his arms and nailed him there, the ones who are callously gambling for his clothes while he hangs above them naked and praying for their forgiveness. That's something that we don't think about very often. Um, that Jesus was likely naked when he was on the cross. Um, now, some scholars, and obviously, for obvious reasons, most of our art represents him with some kind of loincloth on, but best I could tell, the majority of scholars believe that Roman practice was to crucify their victims naked. man named Jonathan Storm and he writes about this and he, he cites Thomas Cahill in his great little book Desire of the Everlasting Hills he says Cahill points out that sexual humiliation and shaming was a part of the ritual of crucifixion a naked man wouldn't be able to cover himself as his hands were nailed outward his cross would be planted into the earth with his body at eye level for all to see and the sexual taunts would go on until and perhaps after they died. Cahill said this would have been all been part of the entertainment but for the one doing the dying it was absolute horror. And then he writes, remember the Iraq war prison scandal of Abu Ghraib where prisoners were led around um, naked uh, on leashes. Remember how scandalous that was for those Middle Eastern men? Remember, that's who Jesus is, a man from the Middle East with the same kind of honor-shame culture. Jesus' death was a public mocking of a naked, religious, weak, and dying man. Mess with us, Rome says, and this is what happens. We strip you bare, we parade you through your hometown, and we fillet you in front of your friends and family. Some of you have heard of Corrie Ten Boom. She's, uh, uh, she was one of the more um, well-known Christians who suffered through the Holocaust in a Nazi prisoner of war camp. Her family was captured for their commitment to help hide the Jews from the Nazi regime. In her book, The Hiding Place, Corrie talks about how the hardest part of being in the concentration camp was uh, that the Nazis made the prisoners strip every Friday for the current humiliation of what they called a medical inspection. She, along with all the other prisoners, were forced to stand dehumanized in a line of people where they were forced to keep their hands at their side. One Friday, as Corey stood behind her frail and dying sister Betsy, the thought came to her. He hung naked on the cross. And she whispered to her sister Betsy standing in front of her, they took his clothes too. And she says, and I didn't feel ashamed anymore. Jesus 
is praying for those soldiers when he says, Father, forgive them. They are them. But even more than that, I suppose he's praying for the religious leaders who tried him and sentenced him based on trumped up charges and contradictory testimony. They are them. He's praying for the witnesses who lied out of fear of the authorities. They are them. He's praying for Pilate and for Herod, both of whom found no fault in him, yet would cement their friendship over his rigged trials and subsequent conviction. They are them. He's praying for Peter, who denied him over and over and over in his hour of greatest need, and for the disciples who fled and deserted him in the garden. They are them. He's praying for the crowds who shouted, crucify him, crucify him. They too are them. He prays for all of them when he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. It's like they didn't grasp the vast enormity of the grievous wrong they were doing, of the heinous sin that they were committing. They had nailed the Son of God to a tree. They were complicit. And now he on the cross was praying for them. He was praying for the enemies who wished him dead. This is the greatest of understatements. He was praying for the undeserving. For the rulers and the deciders and the enforcers and the deniers and the betrayers and the liars and the shouters and the mockers too. Father, forgive them. Now how they mocked him. Look at verse 35. The people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. John tells us that sign was written in three languages, Aramaic, Greek, and, and Hebrew, so that everyone could be in on the joke. But even in the mocking, you hear the truth about who Jesus really is ringing out in the very titles they mocked him with, the one who saves, the Christ of God, his chosen one, king of the Jews. King of the Jews, the sign read in three languages so that everyone would know the truth. And it's interesting, Jesus calls out this prayer and he says, Father, forgive them. He calls out to God as Father. Um, It's interesting because that's the very thing that got him crucified. John chapter five says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. But that was the very thing That was the very thing that could get his enemies forgiveness. Because as the son, 
he had the father's ear. Martha knew that as she contemplated his power to raise her dead brother from the grave. In John 11, Martha says, but even now, Jesus, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so Jesus prays for his enemies and he practices what he preaches because you remember uh, Peter came to him with this question right in Matthew 18 Lord how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times and Jesus said to him I do not say to you seven times but 77 times and so this is what he asks of us if we follow Jesus we are to forgive like Jesus Colossians says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We, we must forgive. And at this point, be good for us to go back to that original question. Exactly who is being forgiven here today and, and for what? Let's think about that last part. And for what? What exactly were they being forgiven for? We call it crucifixion. And it's almost so unimaginable that we cannot we cannot get what it's like. And words don't really do it justice. And so perhaps uh, this will help you grasp more fully what he is forgiving them for. Father, forgive them for crucifying me. He is asking that they be forgiven for a crucifixion, for a misplaced crucifixion. They were crucifying an innocent man, an innocent man who was the very one and only son of God. They were nailing the God-man to a tree and that is what Jesus is pleading forgiveness on their behalf because of. They were complicit, all of them, in the torturous death of an innocent man who was also the one and only son of God. There's a Roman writer named Seneca. He lived during the time of Jesus, I believe. And he wrote of crucifixion he said, would any human being willingly choose to be fastened to that cursed tree, especially after the beating that left him deathly weak, deformed, swelling with vicious welts on shoulders and chest, and struggling to draw every last agonizing breath? Anyone facing such a death would plead to die 
rather than mount the cross. There's a writer named Fleming Rutledge and she says that the Romans called it, uh, when a person was crucified, that said such a person was uh, damnatio ad bestio. That is Latin for condemned to the death of a beast. Although she says in our society it would be considered unacceptable to even kill an animal in such a way. She says, we've been reminded more than once lately that it's against the Geneva Convention to display or humiliate a prisoner of war. Crucifixion, however, she says, was purposefully designed to do just that, to display and to humiliate. The purpose of pinning the victims up like insects was to invite the gratuitous abuse of the passers-by. The passion accounts reflect in part, she says, a very ancient ritual of humiliation. She says the theological meaning of this is that the crucifixion is an enactment of the worst that we are, an embodiment of the most sadistic and inhuman impulses that lie within it within us and while Jesus hangs there naked and bloodied he is bearing their shame he is he is shamed with their shame and he pleads for them with the father he pleads for the perpetrators of this greatest of mistakes and the most terrible of sins he pleads forgiveness for them and he is pleading it for us you know, when I grew up, the church that I grew up in, uh, they had a, they called a Maundy Thursday service the night before Good Friday, similar to the one we have here. And it was, it was down in the church basement because it was dark and it was done by candlelight. And there was a song that was always sang. It's an old spiritual. And the words went like this. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the cross? Were you there when they nailed him to the cross? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. And I suppose the song could be asking, were you a witness? Or something like, do you believe that they nailed him to the cross? But writer Richard Newhouse hears it differently. He says, on the Sunday that begins Holy Week in our church, we read the passion story. And when we come to the part where the crowd shouts, crucify him, crucify him, that part is read by the entire congregation because we were there. The old spiritual asks, were you there when they crucified my Lord? He says, yes, we answer. Yes, we were there when we crucified our Lord. By our sins, we too are complicit in the death of Jesus on the tree. He died for our sins. Newhouse continues, he says, we are complicit in what has gone so terribly wrong. And he says, and we have problems with that. World-class criminals and murderers and drug traffickers, if they know what they have done, they may have no trouble with that, but for many of us, it may be a bit hard to swallow. I mean, we haven't done anything that bad, have we? Surely nothing so bad as to make us responsible for the death of God on the cross. And then he cites some revisionary history that's happening in, with some of our hymns. 
There's one that Isaac Watts wrote in the 18th century. Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? And Newhouse writes, a worm? Really? Really now. A contemporary hymnal puts it this way. Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Surely sinners is bad enough. He says, similarly with the much-loved, beloved, amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He says, wretch will never do. That's cleaned up in a contemporary version that loved a soul like me. So here Daniel has us sing this truthfully. It's in one of our most beloved hymns and the lyric is this, behold the man upon a cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. So Jesus' prayer is for us too. We need it to be for us too. And it is enough for us. It's enough even for us. There's some pretty dark secrets in this room that maybe nobody knows about. But Jesus has sought forgiveness for us. And it's enough, even for those darkest secrets. Do you believe that Jesus can secure forgiveness for you? And so let this first word from the cross remove all doubt. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This was enough for a man named Dismas. Um, Jesus' second word on the cross is given to him. In verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now these two men, uh, they're nameless criminals in the Bible. We're not given their names and they're called criminals. Another way to render that is they were evildoers. Um, so that we don't know their names but history has given them names the first is called Gestus and the second is called Dismas and here Gestus asks a reasonable question are you not the Christ save yourself and us that would be a reasonable question except for that little word that comes before that says that he railed against them he railed against Jesus and railed is the language of unbelief. In their language, it's blasphemio. You don't have to know a lick of Greek to know what that one means, right? He was blaspheming Jesus. The word can mean insult or rail or something like that if it's used against a person, but whenever it's used about God, it becomes blasphemy. It's especially sobering since it comes from Gestus' lips, a man condemned to die, that blasphemy carried a sentence of death in Israel's law. But the second criminal, and history names him Dismas, has a rebuke for the first. 
Verse 40, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And again, we are eavesdropping on a conversation on the cross amongst these men crucified. And in this rebuke, this short rebuke and what follows, we learn a, a handful of things, really important things about this man, about Dismas. Uh, we don't learn anything about his crime. And we don't learn anything about his life. As I said, we don't even really know his name, but, but we do learn about what he believes. And there's a handful of things that he believes. First, he fears God. Second, he knows his condemnation is just. He knows that he deserves the cross. He says as much. And third, he believes that Jesus does not. He believes Jesus is innocent. I don't know how he knew that. I mean, maybe he'd heard talk before they went to the cross around the town and he'd, he'd heard enough to know, um, maybe. But I can imagine that when you watch a man die, especially in this protracted, tortuous way, you can learn a lot about a man, especially when he pleads forgiveness for those who just put him there. Fourth, he believes that Jesus, as we're about to see, he believes that Jesus is a king, a king who by his death is about to enter his kingdom. And I think... Lastly, that he believes Jesus' offer of forgiveness. It's what seems to underlie this request that he makes in the very next verse. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies to Dismas with the second word from the cross. It's the word of salvation. And Jesus said to him in verse 43, truly I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. I, I can't imagine a more beautiful thing to say to someone dying of crucifixion. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus offers paradise to this man who by his own admission deserves this torturous death penalty. He offers him paradise. Paradise in the Bible can be garden language. Um, it's used to describe the Garden of Eden. Back in the very beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, it's paradise. And it's used to describe where the tree of life is in the book of Revelation at the very other end of the Bible. It's, it's paradise. Um, and I think it is what we mean uh, well, it's, it's, it's where Jesus is, is the implication. It's, it's his kingdom, is the idea. It seems to be associated with that here. I think it's what we mean typically when we talk about heaven. And this offer is really troubling to some. Uh, people will say, can't mean that because he wasn't baptized. And other people will say, it can't mean that because he did not deserve it. And this is especially troubling to our friends who are Jehovah Witnesses. 
on their website, they say that the evildoer alongside Jesus lived as a criminal and died as a criminal. True, he showed a respectful attitude when he said to Jesus, remember me when you get into your kingdom. But nonetheless, he had not become a baptized, spirit-begotten disciple of Jesus, nor had he built a record of upright conduct and faithful endurance. Does it seem reasonable that Jesus would promise him heavenly kingship alongside his faithful followers who had proved their integrity? They say, but did not Jesus tell the evildoer that he would be with him in heaven that day? And this is where they really begin to split hairs. That could not be since Jesus himself did not enter heaven that day. And then they combine um, dismiss to some lesser paradise um, than what we understand Jesus to mean here. I, I liked what one theologian said, as concerns the use of today, it has more to do with theology than chronology. But it seems clear here, right? We're, we're eavesdropping on a conversation amongst crucified criminals. They can barely breathe they can hardly speak. This is going to be the simplest, most plain, most straightforward, most direct conversation. It's not going to be, the meaning of it is not going to be embedded in nuances about Sheol and Hades and the intermediate state. Jesus is offering him paradise with him in his kingdom. Okay. Let it be what, what it says it is. It is, it is grace Jesus is genuinely offering paradise with him in his kingdom to someone who self-assesses as totally unworthy. And I would say, exactly. That's what grace is. And that's who it's for, the undeserving. Grace means you don't get what you deserve. And you get what you don't deserve. That's grace, unmerited favor. And dripping with symbolism, Jesus dispenses it by prayer from the cross for the undeserving. And that, that forgiveness that he's praying about, he would purchase for Dismas on the cross by his death for Dismas and for all who would place their trust in him and, and to receive that grace, that forgiveness. Like Dismas, you have to acknowledge your complicity in his death. He's not dying for his own sin. He's dying to bear your sin. The sins of a broken world of which you are surely a part. You must trust that he can gain you forgiveness by his death for every one of your sins, the secret ones and the not so secret ones. His death is enough. You must trust that even folks who deserve a criminal's death, grace can be given in the death of Jesus that's greater, as we sang earlier, greater than our sin. And so, in a moment, people are gonna come to this table and they're gonna remember the love of Jesus and the sufficiency of his grace. And if you've never received that during that time, you should just bow your head and you should cast your sins on Jesus and you should trust him to be your savior and commit to follow him by that same grace as your king. Because that's what we remember at this table today. There's greater grace than our sin 
that comes from the cross work of Jesus. And this grace is poured out on unworthy evildoers, not just by his words of prayer, but by his life poured out in our place. That's what Jesus, that's the way Jesus put it in Matthew. When he first started this supper, it says that he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And this is what we remember when we come together to this table. It may be that some of you need to repent before you come to confess unforgiveness that's lodged in your heart towards someone that has wronged you and to ask God for grace to pass on the forgiveness that Jesus pled and bought for us undeserving ones when he died on the cross. And then, having confessed your sin, come to the table and remember that there's mercy and grace in Christ that's greater than your sin. That it is especially for the undeserving. As you come today um, with this rearrangement here, let me suggest that you come down the center aisle and return through these side aisles. And if you're on a side, if you'd come through the wall aisle and then return also through this side aisle, that'll help us not get in each other's way as we come to the table. Would you bow with me in prayer as we ready ourselves? So Jesus, we, we heed your command and we come now to remember you to remember the words you spoke for us on the cross. Father, forgive them. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus, we cling to these words, to these hopes. Help us to believe them fully and to share them gladly. You are the hope of the world. And we remember now that on the night on which you were betrayed, you took bread and you broke it and you said to your disciples, this is my body. It is broken for you. Do this also in remembrance of me. And in the same way after the meal, you took the cup and you said, this cup contains the new covenant in my blood which is for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Do this also in remembrance of me.